What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to an Egyptian history podcast mini-episode, Tales of Wonder, Part 1. Let me ask you, how do you entertain a king? How do you entertain a ruler of the Nile Valley, one of the most splendid and wealthy individuals in all the world? I'm bored. I want to be entertained. Can my pharaoh find some way to entertain his queen? The story I recount to you today was written or composed several hundred years after the time in which it is set. It is called The Tales of Wonder, and it concerns events in the reign of King Sneferu and his son, King Kanum Khufu. The story, like many Egyptian stories, is actually a story within a story. The outer story, the primary story, is set within the reign of King Khufu, but the story within it is set during the reign of his father, King Seneferu. So, for reference, the whole story takes place around approximately 2500 BCE. Part 1. Prince Bauerfra's Tale then Prince Bauerfra stood up to speak. He said, I shall let your majesty hear a wonder which happened in the time of your father, Sneferu, true of voice. This was performed by the chief lector priest, Jaja M. Ankh. Yesterday illuminates today. These things have not happened before. One day, the dual king Sneferu, true of voice, was going around every chamber in the palace. Life, prosperity, health. He sought for himself a place of relaxation, but he could find none. Then he said, Go and bring to me the chief lector priest and scribe of the role, Jaja M. Ankh. And he was brought to him immediately. Then his majesty said to the priest, I went around every chamber of the palace, life, prosperity, health, to seek for myself a place of relaxation, but I could find none. Then Jaja M. Ankh said to the king, Then let your majesty proceed to the lake of the palace, life, prosperity, health, and equip a boat for yourself with all of the beautiful women of your palace. Your majesty's heart will be refreshed to see them row, rowing up and down. You will see the beautiful pools of your water garden. You will see its fields and its beautiful banks, and your heart will be refreshed by it. The king replied, I will indeed make a rowing trip. Let there be brought to me twenty oars of ebony worked in gold, their handles of sandalwood worked in electrum. Let there be brought to me twenty women with beautiful bodies, deep-bosomed with braided hair, 
who still have their virgin bloom. Let there be brought to me twenty nets, and give these nets to the woman in place of their clothes. Then it was done exactly as his majesty commanded. I have to say, the woman, the beauties, called Neferu, kind of gives an extra spin on the name of King Seneferu. Seneferu means one who makes beautiful things appear. You almost wonder whether there's an element of decadence in that name. He doesn't just make beautiful monuments, he makes beautiful women appear as well. Anyway. And the woman rode up and down, and his majesty's heart was gladdened at seeing them row. Then the one who was at the stroke oar got her braid entangled. Then her fish pendant of new turquoise fell into the water. She stopped rowing, and then her whole side stopped rowing. Then his majesty said, Shouldn't you be rowing? And they said, Our stroke has stopped rowing. And his majesty said to her, Why are you not rowing? And she said, Because a fish pendant of new turquoise fell into the water. Then he said, Oh, if you want it, it shall be replaced. And she said, I want my own, not one like it. And his majesty said, Go and bring me the chief lector priest, Jaja Imank. And he was brought to him immediately. Then his majesty said, Jaja Imank, my brother, I have done as you said, and my majesty's heart was refreshed at seeing the beauties row. But then a fish pendant of new turquoise, belonging to the stroke oar, fell in the water. Then she stopped rowing, and ruined her whole side. And I said to her, Why aren't you rowing? And she said to me, Because a fish pendant of new turquoise fell in the water. And I said to her, Row, look, I'll replace it. And she said to me, I want my own, not one like it. Now, obviously there's a bit of repetition going on here, and that's actually a literary trope that comes along later in Egyptian history. Early Egyptian texts don't use repetition, but later on in their history, once they began to engage particularly with the Levant and the Semitic people speaking there, the Egyptians actually started to be influenced by Near Eastern literary traditions, and so they started to use more repetition. This is why we hear the same basic thing twice in the same section, because this is written at a later time period, and the literary style is slightly different. I just think that's kind of cool. Now then. So the chief lector priest, Jaja M. Ankh, said his magic words. Then he placed one side of the lake's water on top of the other, and he found the fish pendant lying on a potsherd. Then he fetched it, and it was given to its owner. Now, as for the water, it was twelve cubits deep in the middle, and it ended up twenty-four cubits deep after it had been folded over. Then he said his magic words again, and he restored the waters of the lake to their original position. His Majesty spent the day having fun with the entire royal household, life, prosperity, health, and so he rewarded the chief lector priest, Jaja M. Ankh, with every good thing. Jaja M. Ankh's solution to the problem should be familiar to you if you know your Egyptian history or your Bible. Like a certain Moses, Jaja M. Ankh parts the waters of the lake in order to fetch the necklace from the bottom of the lake. I think the image that you get of Moses parting the waters would serve you quite well here. The water splitting upwards and folding back on itself. This is probably what the Egyptians mean when they say that he folds the water up so that it stands twice as high as it is deep. 
It's an interesting parallel with the book of Exodus, and again, it hints at that Near Eastern influence on the literature. Then Prince Bao-Ephra concluded, Behold the wonder which occurred in the time of your father, the dual king Sneferu, true of voice, a deed of the chief lector priest and scribe of the roll, Jaja M. Ank. Then the majesty of the dual king Khufu, true of voice, said, Let an offering be made of a thousand loaves, a hundred jars of beer, an ox, and two bowls of incense for the majesty of the dual king Sneferu, true of voice. And let there be given a cake, a jug of beer, and a bowl of incense for the chief lector priest and scribe of the roll, Jaja M. Ankh. For I have seen his act of wisdom. And it was done exactly as his majesty commanded. One chapter of the story now finishes, and we move from the tale of Prince Bao-Ephra to a new one, the tale of Prince Hordjedef. Then Prince Hordjedef stood up to speak. He said, How to relate a past deed is something only those who have passed away truly know. Truth cannot be truly known any more than falsehood. Remarkably, there is a subject of your majesty in your own time who not only knows the things that do not exist, but also everything that does. And his majesty said, What is this, Horjedef, my son? And Prince Horjedef said, There is a fellow called Jedi who lives in Jed Sneferu, which is the pyramid town near to the pyramid of Sneferu. He is a fellow of 110 years old. He eats 500 loaves and the shoulder of an ox for meat, and he drinks a hundred jars of beer right up to today. He knows how to reattach a severed head. He knows how to make a lion walk beside him with its leash trailing on the ground. He knows the number of the chambers of the sanctuary of Thoth. Now, the majesty of the dual king, Khufu, true of voice, used to spend all day searching out these chambers of the sanctuary of Thoth for himself, in order to make their replica for his own tomb. His majesty said, You yourself, Horjedev, you shall bring Jedi to me. Then boats were made ready for the prince, and he travelled upstream to the town of Jed Sneferu. Once the boats had been moored at the river bank, he travelled overland, seated in a carrying chair of ebony with carrying poles of boxwood inlaid with gold. Once he had reached Jedi, the palanquin was set down. Prince Horjedef stood up to address Jedi and found him lying on a mat on the threshold of his porch. A servant was holding his head, anointing it for him, and another was massaging his feet. Then Prince Horjedef said, You seem much younger than your ears. Old age is usually the time of dying, the time of burial, the time of rejoining the earth. Sleeping until daybreak, free from illness, without a rattling cough? This is a greeting for a revered one. I have come here to summon you on a commission of my father, Khufu, true of voice. Come, and you shall eat fine things of the king's bounty, and all the provisions of his retinue. He will see that you live a good life until you join your forefathers who are in the necropolis. And Jedi said, Welcome, welcome, Horjedef, a prince beloved by his father. May your father, Khufu, true of voice, praise you. May he promote your position among the elder ones. May your spirit prevail against your enemy. May your soul learn the roads that lead to the portal of the Lord of the Underworld. This is a greeting for a prince. This little back and forth between Hordjedef and Jedi is basically an exchange of pleasantries. 
Horjedev compliments Jedi, noting that he seems so much more youthful and vigorous than his age would suggest. In return, Jedi heaps praise upon the prince, and hopes that his efforts will be rewarded with victory and with recognition in the afterlife. These are polite introductions in Egyptian society, especially at the court level. Then Horjedev threw open his arms, raised Jedi up, and proceeded with him to the riverbank, giving him his arm for support. Then Jedi said, Let me be given a barge to bring my children and my writings with me. And two boats and their crews were put at his disposal. Then Jedi came downstream in Prince Horjedev's boat. Once he had reached the royal residence, Prince Horjedev went in to report to the majesty of the dual king, Khufu, true of voice. And Prince Horjedev said, Sovereign, life, prosperity, health, my lord, I have brought Jedi. And his majesty said, Go, bring him to me. His majesty proceeded to the forecourt of the palace, life, prosperity, health, and Jedi was ushered in to see him. And his majesty said, How is it, Jedi, that I have not seen you before? And Jedi said, He who is summoned comes, sovereign, life, prosperity, health. Summon me, and look, I have come. His Majesty said, Is it true what they say, that you know how to reattach a severed head? And Jedi said, Yes, I know how to, sovereign, life, prosperity, health, my lord. And His Majesty said, Let there be brought to me the prisoner who is in the jail, and inflict this injury upon him. And Jedi said, Not on people, sovereign, life, prosperity, health, my lord. Look, it is not ordained to do such a thing to the noble flock. Then a duck was brought to him, and its head was cut off. Then the duck was placed on the west side of the court, and its head on the east side. Then Jedi said his magic words, and the duck stood up and waddled, and its head did likewise. When one reached the other, the duck stood up and quacked. Then the king had a goose brought to him, and the same was done to it. Then his majesty had a bull brought to him, and its head was cast upon the ground. Then Jedi said his magic words, and the bull stood up. Then his majesty had a lion brought to him, and its head was cast on the ground. Then Jedi said his magic words, and the lion walked behind him, its leash trailing on the ground. Wow, this Jedi must be the real deal. Not only can he reattach the heads of different animals, he can even make a lion obey him, walking without having to hold its leash. Truly, this Jedi is a man of great force. Then King Khufu, true of voice, said, And they say that you know the number of the chambers of the sanctuary of Thoth. And Jedi said, May it please you, I do not know their number, sovereign, but I know where they are kept. And his majesty said, Where? And Jedi replied, there is a casket of stone in a chamber called Sipti in Heliopolis. They are in the casket. And his majesty said, Go and bring it to me. And Jedi said, Sovereign, my lord, look, it is not I who will bring it to you. And his majesty said, Well then who? Who will bring it to me? And Jedi said, It is the eldest of the three children in the womb of Rajedet who will bring it to you. And his majesty said, but I want it. These things you say? Who is she? Who is this Ra Jedet? And Jedi said, She is the wife of a priest of Ra, the lord of Sakbu, and she is pregnant with three children of Ra, the lord of Sakbu. 
The great God has said of them that they will carry out this excellent office, i.e. the kingship, in this entire land, and that the eldest of them will be the high priest of Ra at Heliopolis. His majesty fell into a bad mood at this, and Jedi said, What is this mood, sovereign, life, prosperity, health, my lord? Is it because of the three children I mentioned? First your son, then his son, and then one of them. And his majesty said, When will Ra Jedet give birth? And Jedi said, She will give birth on the fifteenth day of the first month of the planting season. That is when the Nile flood is going down, even in the north. My servant, would that I had crossed it myself, so that I might see the temple of Ra, lord of Sakbu. And Jedi said, Then I shall create four cubits of water upon the sandbanks of this channel. Then his majesty proceeded to his palace, and his majesty said, Let Jedi be assigned to the entourage of Prince Hordjedef, to reside with him, and to make him provisions of a thousand loaves, a hundred jars of beer, an ox, and a hundred bundles of vegetables. And it was done, exactly as his majesty commanded. At this point, the tales of wonder involving Khufu and his father Sneferu come to their end, and the papyrus now moves on to a new chapter. This next chapter concerns the children whom Jedi prophesied, the children of Rajedet, children destined one day to be the kings of Egypt. One of those days, Rajedet was suffering the pains of childbirth. And the majesty of Ra, the lord of Sakbu, said to the goddess Isis, to Nephthys, to Meskinet, to Heket, and Kanum, Go forth and let Rajedet give birth to the three children who are in her womb, who will carry out this excellent office, the kingship, in the entire land. For they will build your temples, provision your altars, and endow your offering tables, increase your offerings. Then these gods proceeded, having assumed the form of musicians, and Kanum went with them, carrying the baggage. Then they arrived at the house of Ra'usa, and they found him standing with his kilt on upside down. They presented to him their necklaces and their musical instruments. Then he said to them, My ladies, look, the woman is suffering the pains of childbirth. And they said, Let us see her. Look, we know about childbirth. And he said, Go on in. And they entered before Rajedet. Then the musicians, the gods in disguise, sealed the room with her and them inside. Then Isis took up position in front of her, Nephthys behind her, and Hecate hastened the birth. Then Isis said to the first child, May you not be too powerful in her womb, in this your name of Usareth. And this child slipped out into her arms, a child of one cubit with strong bones. His limbs resembled gold, his headdress real lapis lazuli. And they washed him when his umbilical cord had been cut, and they placed him on a pillow of cloth. Then Meskinet presented herself to him and said, a king who shall carry out the kingship in this entire land. Kunum strengthened his limbs. Then Isis took up position in front of Rajedet, Nephthys behind her, while Hecate hastened the birth. Then Isis said, May you not kick in her womb, in this your name of Sahure. And this child slipped out into her arms, a child of one cubit with strong bones, his limbs resembled gold, his headdress real lapis lazuli, and they washed him when his umbilical cord had been cut, and placed him on a pillow of cloth. Then Meskinet presented herself to him, and said, 
a king who will carry out the kingship in this entire land. Kanum strengthened his limbs. Then Isis took a position in front of Rajedet, Nephthys behind her, while Hecate hastened the birth. Then Isis said to the third child, May you not be too dark in her womb, in this your name of Kekku. And this child slipped out into her arms, a child of one cubit with strong bones. His limbs resembled gold, his headdress real lapis lazuli. And they washed him when his umbilical cord had been cut, and placed him on a pillow of cloth. Then Meskinet presented herself to him, and said, A king who will carry out the kingship in this entire land. Kanum strengthened his limbs. Again, it's that Near Eastern repetition. It makes sense in this sort of trilogy of births, but it's kind of an interesting feature. Normally, Egyptian scribes would vary up the text a little bit, describing it differently each time. Not this time. This is pure Semitic repetition. Then these gods went out, having delivered Ra-Jedet of the three children. Then they said to the man, Be glad, Ra-Usa, for three children have been born to you. And he said to them, My ladies, how can I thank you? Please give this gallon of corn to your porter and take it as a tip. And Kanum loaded himself with the gallon. Then they returned whence they had come. Isis said to her fellow gods, What did we come here for if we do not perform a wonder for these children, that we can report to their father, the one who sent us? Then they fashioned three crowns fit for a lord, life, prosperity, health, and placed them in the gallon. Then they made the sky turn into wind and rain. Then they turned back to the house, and they said, Please, put this gallon in a locked room here until we return from making music in the north. Then they put the gallon in a locked room. And Ra-Jedet became pure again after a purification of fourteen days. Then she said to her maid, Is the house prepared? And the maid said, Everything is prepared except the jars which have not been brought. Then Ra-Jedet said, But why haven't the jars been brought? And the maid said, Well, there is nothing here to put in them except for the musician's gallon, and it is in a room which they locked. Then Ra-Jedet said, Go down and bring it from there. Ra-Usa can repay them for it when he returns. And the maid went and unlocked the room. And then she heard the sound of singing, music, dancing, rejoicing, everything that is done for a king inside that room. Then she went back and reported everything she had heard to Ra-Jedet. And Ra-Jedet went around the room, but could not find the place this music was coming from. Then she put her ear to the sack and discovered that the noise was being made inside it. Then she put the gallon in a box, placed it inside another locked container, and tied it up with leather. She put it in the room which contained her belongings, and she locked it up. Then Ra-Usa returned from the fields, and Ra-Jedet repeated this affair to him, and he was happier than anything. Then they sat down and spent a happy time, which probably means to have sex. This little chapter is an indication of prophecy. The goddesses have given their tokens, their crowns, to the king whom they've come to visit, but they've locked them away. When a mere mortal tries to approach these gifts, which they have been forbidden to touch, the sound of the goddesses, who remember were masquerading as musicians, fills their ears, and it is specifically referred to as entertainment for a king. This would have been taken clearly as a symbol by Ra-Jedet and Ra-Usa, that there was something special about their three boys. Truly, they could look forward to exciting times ahead. A few days later, Ra-Jedet had an argument with the maid, 
and she punished her with a beating. Then the maid said to the other members of the household, Why is this done? Why? She has borne three kings. I will go and tell it to the majesty of the dual king, Khufu, true of voice. And she went and found her older brother binding flax and yarn on the threshing floor. And her brother said to her, Where are you off to, maid? And she repeated the affair to him. And her brother said, So, doing what should be done means coming to me, and me agreeing to the accusations? And he took a bundle of flax to her, and gave her a nasty beating. Then the maid went to get a cup of water from the Nile, but a crocodile seized her. Ouch, poor maid. But before your sympathies get up for her, remember that in the Egyptian perception, this maid is actually blaspheming, because the gods themselves have decreed that these children should be kings one day, and she is going to go tell the living king that there are three infants waiting to usurp his crown? No, this maid had to be killed, she had to be removed from the story in order to preserve the god's will. It's not very nice, particularly for the maid, but that's divine will, I guess. The maid's brother went to tell of this affair to Rajedet. He found Rajedet sitting with her head on her lap, her mood worse than anything. And he said to her, My lady, why this mood? And she said, It is the maid who grew up in this house. See, she is gone, saying, I will go and accuse them of what is happening. Then the brother lowered his head and said, My lady, she actually came to tell me so that she might go with me. I gave her a nasty beating. She went to draw herself a little water, and a crocodile seized her. At this point, the Tales of Wonder ends, and we do not have the remaining sections that once completed the story. The children of Rajedet will return in our narrative, but that is a story for another day, for the children of Rajedet, at least in the cultural memory, did indeed go on to become kings of Egypt, and ultimately, they would found an entirely new dynasty. You see, within a few decades of King Khufu, the line of the fourth dynasty is going to come to its end. So, unfortunately, we have to finish the Tales of Wonder here with a to-be-continued. Special thanks to Michael Levy, whose harp music provides the background for today's episode. Check out ancientlyre.com, that's ancient L-Y-R-E dot com, for more of Michael Levy's music. This episode was recorded in May 2017. If there are any audio inconsistencies or narrative inconsistencies with the episodes before and after it, I do apologize, and I beg your indulgence. At some point in the near future, I intend to remaster and re-record these early episodes. For now, I'm simply filling in the gaps where I can. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.